about 400 years, gone through a series of judges. Finally, they had Samuel, the last judge, and Samuel was leading the people. But as he got old, the children of Israel got tired of being led by a God they couldn't see. You ever frustrated with that? Children of Israel were frustrated to receive orders from a God they couldn't see, so they asked for a king. Well, we know way back in the beginning, Moses had given prophecy concerning a king that was coming. The king, the Mashiach Nagid, the Messiah, the prince, the, the, the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords, when Jesus Christ would come rule and reign. Looking forward to that, but unable to wait for the day when God would would be among them and be their king and unsatisfied with leadership through or or relationship through a God that they was intangible. They couldn't touch. They couldn't see. They asked for a king, someone they could look at, that they could say, that's the guy we're following. That's the guy, you know, we, we want to put our hope in. He's the guy who's going to save us and carry us through. Samuel's heart was broken, but God said to Samuel, Samuel, don't be frustrated. They haven't rejected you. They rejected me. And so he gave them a king, Saul. And we saw in Saul, chapter 12, Saul starts off well. He does a good job. He's humble. He's, he's not full of himself. You know, he's trusting in the Lord. He's, he's leaning in God's strength. I mean, let's face it. Whether you have a king or no king, the same deliverer, right? God is the one who delivers. Doesn't matter who's in front. God is the one who delivers. All the time. Every time. And so Saul was delivering. But in chapter 13, we begin to see the decline of Saul. It takes three chapters. Chapter 13, 14, and 15 for Saul to reach his bottom where he's going to stay for roughly the next 15 years. But he begins this downward spiral. And that downward spiral begins... With just a little thing called arrogance or pride. Anybody ever struggle with arrogance or pride? Or is it only Saul? Well, as we're considering this, and we talked a little bit about it in the men's retreat this last weekend, I want you guys to just consider that idea and turn with me to Second Chronicles, Second Chronicles chapter twenty-six. <clears throat> Often I think we we hammer on Saul because, well, Saul was a bad king. Didn't work out so good. So maybe it would be a better lesson for us to go to somebody a little different. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, we're going to see a synopsis of the reign of Uzziah. Uzziah is a good king. You might recognize the name, and Isaiah would write in Isaiah chapter 6, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isaiah was only able to come to a place where he was able to see the Lord when God moved Uzziah out of the way. Prior to that, I mean, Uzziah was the man. Everybody looked at Uzziah. He's a good king. Led the people well. In fact, we're going we're gonna to see some of those things. We're just going to go through chapter 26. Now, all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. So Uzziah takes over at 16 he built Elath and restored it to Judah after the kings rested with his father. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king, and he reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jechaliah of Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father Amaziah had done. He sought God in the days of Zechariah, 
who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Well, he went out and he made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath and the wall of Jabna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbaal and against the Meunites. Also the Ammonites brought tribute to Uzziah. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, for he became exceedingly strong. Uzziah is a good king. Man, he's doing well. By all accounts, Uzziah is a good guy. But here in verse 8, he runs into his first problem. He became exceedingly strong. And he knew it. When we come to those places, those junctures in our life. You remember when Paul would cry out to the Lord to have the thorn in his flesh removed. Three times he prayed, Lord, remove the thorn in my flesh. I mean, surely it's God's will to remove this source of pain or frustration or whatever it was in Paul's life. I mean, that would be God's will, right? Well, what did the Lord say to him? No. He said, no, because my strength is made perfect in your strength. No, he said, my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Because when you are weak, Paul, I am strong. When we are in that place where we know, God forbid, we ever reach a place where we think we're strong. Where we think as a church, we're strong, we're doing, we're making it, we are something, we are nothing. Anything that happens here in this building, on this property, is a work of God and His Spirit only. Does not require any man, any woman, any special thing. Just requires people willing to be used of God. And that's where Uzziah was when he was 16. And that's where Uzziah was when he was fighting with the Philistines and going through all the stuff he went through. But we come to chapter 9, it says, Uzziah built towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, at the valley gate, at the corner, at the corner buttress of the wall, and he fortified them. And he built towers in the desert, and he dug many wells, for he had much livestock, both in the lowlands and in the plains. He also had farmers and vine dressers in the mountains and in Carmel, for he loved the soil. That reminds you of anybody else? <laughs> Moreover, Uzziah had an army of fighting men who went out to war by companies. According to the number on their rolls prepared, uh, prepared by J.E.L. and the scribe Messiah and the officer, <clears throat> Messiah, the officer under the hand of Hananiah, one of the king's captains. The total number of chief officers of the mighty men of valor was 2,600. And under their authority was an army of 307,500 that made war with mighty power to help the king against the enemy. Well, Uzziah prepared for them for the entire army, shields, spears, helmets, body armors, bows, slings to cast stones. He made devices in Jerusalem invented by skillful men to be on the towers and the corners to shoot arrows and large stones. Well, he's, he's got a fortified fortress, man. He's got every soldier with armor and shields and spears. I mean, he's got a mighty thing going here. So his fame spread far and wide, for he was marvelously helped till he became strong. But when he was strong in his heart, 
and his heart was lifted up to his destruction. He transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. So Azariah the priest went in after him, and with him were 80 priests of the Lord, valiant men, and they withstood King Uzziah. And they said, it is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord. It's the priest's job, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You shall have no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah became furious. And he had a censer in his hand to burn incense. And while he was angry with the priests, leprosy broke out on his forehead. Before the priests in the house of the Lord, beside the incense altar. Nazariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And there on his forehead was leprous. So they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, they hurried to get him out because the Lord had struck him. King Uzziah was a leper until the day of his death. And he dwelt in an isolated house because he was a leper, for he was cut off from the house of the Lord. Now, King Uzziah is doing good. He had it all together. I mean, he, he was doing right. He built the army. He, he led well. But then he was lifted up with pride. And he thought of himself, you know, I should be able to go in and do the job of the priest. I'm a good king. Serve the Lord all my days. And he became proud. And he walked into the tabernacle and he tried to offer incense on the golden altar. That's right before the veil into the Holy of Holies. And God smote him in his pride or leprosy. And he dies in isolation. And that's the story of Uzziah. And it's not that much different from the story of Saul. We just saw in chapter 13, Saul, who was supposed to wait for Samuel for seven days. And on the seventh day, Samuel wasn't there yet. So Saul said, well, you know what? I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm going to offer the offering to the Lord. I'm going to make the burnt offering. And as he's in the midst of doing that, he hears, here comes Samuel. And Saul goes to greet him. It says in the English, what it really means in the Hebrew is Saul went to go bless Samuel. Saul's so puffed up with pride, he's going to go bless the prophet of God, the voice of God to the people for the last, you know, 60 years. He's going to go bless him. Because he's got it all figured out. He's got it all solved. You know, he's, he's ready. It's, something's got to happen. And nothing was happening, so it's better to do something than to wait, right? That's not what the Word of God says. The Word of God tells us in Isaiah... Those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. Not those who are impatient and have to do something. But those who wait on the Lord. No. <laughs> we want to be waiting. We want to be in that place where God can do that perfect work. So let's look. You remember it just happened. He goes out to greet him. Samuel said to him, what have you done? And, and Saul blamed Samuel. You weren't here. So Samuel said in verse 13, let's pick it up at chapter 13. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. For the Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. Listen, I want us to understand as we look at that tonight. 
That's still what God's looking for. God's looking for someone after his own heart. Someone for whom doing the will of God is more important than satisfying himself. That's not where Saul was. Saul wasn't in that place. Saul was, hey, I'm starting, the people are leaving. His army was going and hiding in the rocks in the caves. I got to do something. He was worried about how he looked. Let me ask you a question. According to the scripture, does God need Saul's 3,000 men to get victory? You mean he's done it before with less? Does he need 300 men? Man, we up on, up on a mountain, we talked a little bit about Shennacherib. Shennacherib, he, he was hated by his parents. That's why they named him that. And it made him an angry man. And he was a ruler of Assyria, and he starts to talk to King Hezekiah about all the bad things he's going to do to him, and how God can't save him, and nothing can stop him from destroying him. And Hezekiah goes into the house of the Lord, and he opens up the letter that Shennacherib wrote, and he says, Oh, man, God, here's what he's saying. But I'm just going to lay it all out before you. On that day, God didn't need any army. He did it himself with one angel. One angel killed 186,000 men by himself without making any noise. God doesn't need our help. But Saul is so panicked that his army's leaving. He's got to do something. And if we're honest, we've all been in that place before. We've all had our backs up against the wall beyond the last moment. God, if you don't do something in the next you know, day or the next hour or the next five minutes, it's all going to fall apart. But God wants us to know it's not all going to fall apart. It's all in his hand. What's going to happen is going to happen. We rest in him. He can deliver by many or by few. But Saul cared about how it looked to him. So he was a man after his own heart. And so God says, I'm looking for a man after mine. Someone that wants to do my will. Someone who's concerned with how it looks to me. And not about them. Well, hold your finger here and turn to Psalm 16. And this is a psalm that uh, that David wrote. And let's just look at this. Because I think in this Psalm 16, David kind of describes this attitude That he had. Listen, a man after God's own heart doesn't mean you're sinless, right? David was a man after God's own heart. He certainly wasn't sinless. What's it mean? Someone whose attitude is his desire is to please God. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. O my soul, you have said to the Lord, you are my God. My goodness is nothing apart from you. See, that's having a heart after God. God, I have nothing if I don't have you. But if I have something without him, if I have something without the Lord, then I don't really get what it is to have the Lord. If I look and say like Nebuchadnezzar, look at this kingdom which I have built. Man, it's pretty cool. The psalmist, he says, "I, I don't have anything. I don't have anything but you. God is his everything. As for the saints who are on the earth, they are the excellent ones in whom, all, in whom is all my delight. Their sorrow shall be multiplied who hasten after another God. Their drink offerings of blood I will not offer. 
nor take up their names on my lips. He's making a decision. I'm going to be counted amongst the lords. I'm not going to serve him other gods. I'm not going to make their offerings. I'm not even going to let their names be on my lips. And we call that sanctification, being sanctified, set apart, focused on the Lord for his use. That's a man after God's own heart. Focused on, on the Lord and what God would do. Verse 5, O Lord, you are my portion, the portion of my inheritance and my cup. You maintain my lot. The lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. Yes, I have good inheritance. Listen, he says, you are the portion of my inheritance. Not what do I have? How much is in my bank account? Is everything going my way? First, he says, you're my inheritance. See, the ultimate retirement that I'm looking for is the Lord. It's not my 401k, which I don't even have. So really, there's no sense in looking at one. My retirement is the Lord, period. Some people say, that's just stupid. Well, maybe it's stupid, maybe it's not. But it doesn't matter. That's my retirement. Him. Lord takes care of me, or, you know, I live on the street someplace. I don't know, but that's it. He's my portion. He's my inheritance. That's all I want. I don't want the big house with a nice car and all the other stuff. I just want him. And then he said, and you're the one who takes care of my lot. That means, you know, when you go through life and, and things happen and you think, oh, that guy sure is lucky or that guy's very, not very lucky. Well, the psalmist says, you're the one who controls my lot. Whatever happens passes through your hands to me. So then he says, my lines fall in pleasant places. Oh, yeah, that's true. David had such a, a, a cherished life, right? I mean, everything always worked out for David, didn't it? Oh, except for the 10 years he had to live in a cave because the king wanted to kill him. But that's not, he didn't say that. He didn't say, oh, my life's been hard. And he says, hey, whatever's happened in my life, the lions have fallen in pleasant places. That's a man after God's own heart. A man that says, whatever's happened in my life passed through the hands of a God who loves me and I can trust him and I, and I believe him. David's not perfect. He's just willing to allow God to, to be God, to put his hope and his trust in him. The lions are in pleasant places. He's my inheritance. So I will bless the Lord who has given me counsel. My heart also instructs me in the night seasons. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be moved. Amen. I love that phrase. I shall not be moved. You know, in... In Acts chapter 20, Paul says the same thing. Oh, Paul, he's getting ready to go to Jerusalem. And everybody said, that's the dumbest thing you can do, Paul. That's a dumb idea. When you get to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest you. In fact, a, a prophet came to church. A guy who had the gift of prophecy. And he, he bound up his hands with, a, with Paul's belt. And he said, the owner of this belt, this is what they're going to do to him when he comes to Jerusalem. All the people said, oh, man, Paul... If that's what's happening, then it can't be God's will for you to go to Jerusalem. And Paul said, what are you people doing to me? You break my heart. Man, I am willing to be bound and much more. I don't count my life dear to myself. He said, none of these things move me. 
nor do I count my life dear to myself, that I might finish my race with joy. Paul said, I don't care. So the Lord tells me when I go, I'm going to be arrested. It's God who's sending me, and I'll go. And I'll be arrested, and ultimately Paul will be killed. But he said, I don't care. I'm going to do what God's called me to do. The psalmist said the same thing. With God at my right hand, I won't be moved. I can face anything. You know one of the amazing things about David? He's anointed king as a young man. And a lot of people give him that kind of authority. Now think about the authority. The prophet of the nation comes to you, pours oil on you, and says, you're the king. A lot of guys would have said, hey, let's, brothers, who else is with me? All of Israel, who's with me? Come. And we're going to go, and we're going to fight that despot Saul. And we're going to wipe him out and get rid of him, and we're going to set up the king, because I'm the king God chose. But that's not what David did. David said, God is able to raise me up without me helping him at all. So he waited for God to do the work. Are we that patient? When we look at the, our situations, I'm not saying not to move. Certainly when God says go, we go. Man, we do. But if God hasn't said something, that was one of Saul's problems, right? Day six, Samuel's not here yet. I got to do something. David, he just waited. He waits 10 years while Saul hunts him for God to make him king. We think, well, that's just when he was younger. When he was older, he was much more wise than that. And so if anything would happen when he was older, he would have behaved differently, right? Why, well, the story when he's old of his son. You remember the fellow with the long hair? Goldilocks. <laughs> yeah, Absalom. Absalom's heart was raised up against his father. And he begins a rebellion against David. And David raised up his army and he went out and met Absalom on the field and wiped him out, right? Oh, no, that's not what David did. What did he do? He left. He left. He took his army. He said, hey, I don't know. Maybe God's moving me because I've messed up. Maybe God wants to raise up my son as king. I don't know. But God's able to do it without me. And he left Jerusalem, walked away from the throne. He just left it there as the throne. All Absalom's got to do is walk and take it. But God delivered. Because David was a man after God's heart. His desire was not, hey, that's my throne and I'm going to hold on to it. His desire was, I'm not sure what God wants, so I'm going to get out of the way and let God do his thing. That's a man after God's own heart. It's not a perfect man or woman. It's not a man or woman without sin. It's, not, it's a man or woman whose focus is, I want whatever God wants first, more than me, him. And with God on my side, hey, I won't be moved. I won't move. David said, I don't have to cling to that throne. If God wants me to have it, I'll have it. If he doesn't, I won't. And there's nothing anybody else can do about it. And he was a patient, patient enough to wait. He goes on and says in verse 9, Therefore my heart is glad, and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to seek corruption. You will show me the path of life. 
And in your presence is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Now ultimately that verse is speaking of the Christ. That Jesus is not going to be left in the grave. That he'll be resurrected. But, but beyond that he's saying, in you is all the joy I need. In you is all the pleasure I could ever ask for. In you. To me, Psalm chapter 16 says, this is what it is to be a man after God's own heart. Whose primary focus, whose primary goal is to please God and not himself. That, that, that it's about how do I get Jesus' name in lights, not how do I get my name in lights. How do I get people to come to the Lord, not how do I get people to come to me. It's all about him. It's all about the Lord. The Lord sought for himself a man after God's own heart, still looking today. And as many as there are who have that heart, God will use in a mighty, mighty way. And now you've all been armed with the understanding of what that is. So be it. Be a man, a woman, a child after God's own heart. And watch what God can do. Does, it, does a person have to be a certain age to be used to God? Uzziah was 16. I think Josiah was 8 and Solomon was 12. And Moses was 80. And if you give me the time, I could come up with just about every age group all the way through the word of God. That God used people in a mighty way no matter what age they were. Just that one thing. Men after God's own heart. He says, so the Lord seeks for a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Ultimately, what's the issue with Saul? Saul was not, did not care about the Lord. Why did God choose Jacob and not Esau? You remember the scripture declares to us, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. That's in English pretty harsh language in Hebrew. It's nowhere near that harsh. Nowhere near. In the Hebrew, basically it means, I have chosen Jacob and Esau I have rejected. Well, when we look back at Jacob and Esau, what do we discover? Esau did not care about the Lord. He despised his birthright. What was the birthright? The birthright made him high priest of the family. The one to go before God for his family. And he hated that. And God knew that about him. You know, God knows when you hate him. That's where Esau was. So God knowing, according to his foreknowledge, who they were. Man, Jacob's the one. He doesn't despise. He desires a birthright. He desires to walk with me. He desires to be with me. And so same here. The Lord saying, hey, I'm, I'm rejecting you because you don't care about spiritual things at all. You were humble in chapter 12. By chapter 13, you're full of pride. Then you're going to be ignorant, dumb, stupid, and it's only going to go downhill from there. And you're going to cause all kinds of grief. So you're not my king, Saul. You're not my king. So Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeah to Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people present with him, about 600 men. He had 3,000. He started with 300,000. He cut them to 3,000. Now those of, of the 3,000, well, 2,400 have left. He's got 600. And Samuel left. And Samuel's never going to be 
with Saul the same way again. We're going to see Samuel together with Saul one other time in chapter 15. And it's going to be a conversation much the same. You've been rejected from being king. And that's it. And Samuel speaks of the presence of God there and, and with Saul. The voice of God. The direction of God. Man, without the direction of God, where would we be? We'd be lost. Well, Samuel's gone. Verse 16. Saul, Jonathan his son, and the people present with them remained in Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped in Michmash. Then raiders came out from the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned onto the road to uh, Oprah's place, the, to the land of Shual. Another company turned to the road to Beth Horon. Another company turned to the road of the border that overlooks the valley of Zeboim toward the wilderness. Well, what does this mean? Here's what it means. Basically, from the encampment of the Philistines to Gibeah, the encampment of, of the children of Israel, he, they sent out three groups of soldiers. And these three groups of soldiers, these raiding parties, were covering every possible route that the children of Israel might be able to take to attack the Philistines. So they're going to get warning. If they come against them, they're going to see them coming. And they're going to have to fight their way through these other raiding parties. The other thing it means is Michmash, the main hub, doesn't have all the soldiers it used to have. The, the head, the place where the leadership is at, has, has uh, dwindled somewhat because they've sent out these raiding parties. Now, verse 19 says, There's no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, for the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make swords or spears. So here's another thing you need to know as we look at this story. They don't have swords. They don't have spears. What do they got? Farming implements. You know, pitchforks, hoes, picks, shovels. The kind of things you would use for farming. And they're not very sharp. How come? They don't have a blacksmith. Well, the scripture goes on to tell us. But all of Israelites would go down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge for sharpening was a pim for the plowshares and the mattocks and the forks and the axes to set points on the goads. Hey, they had to pay a lot of money to get them sharpened. So what do you think? You think everybody had them all sharpened? Yeah, no, I think probably most guys didn't. Most guys made do with what they had, a blunt axe, chopping down a tree. Man, what a blast. So this is all they have. This is their weapons. Not swords, not shields, not armors, not all that stuff. They just got the stuff for farming. So it came about on the day of battle that there was neither sword nor spear found in in the hand of the people who were with Saul and Jonathan. But they were found with Saul and Jonathan. And the garrison, garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. Well, chapter 14 says, Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. And Saul was sitting on the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree, which is in Migron, the people who were with him, 600 men. He had with him Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, 
Ichabod's brother. You remember Ichabod? I think there's a reason why God describes to us that Ichabod's there. Ichabod was the son of Eleazar, one of Eli's kids. Remember when Eli died, or when Eli's sons were all killed, his wife was giving birth at the same time, and then she died, and they called the child's name Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. The ark had been taken. Uh, the glory of God was not in that place anymore. And so here you have Ichabod being mentioned. The glory has departed. Being around Saul, who has been frustrated, the, 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 the prophet of God, and God's not speaking to him through his prophet anymore. So you definitely see this, this turn of events where around Saul, the presence of God really isn't. He's got a priest there with him who shouldn't be a priest. He's one of the sons of, uh, one of the sons of the sons of Eli who were all thrown out because they were bad guys. Remember, they were taking bribes and stuff. It says, uh, he's the son of Phineas, the son of Eli, the, the Lord's priest in Shiloh, and he was wearing an ephod. But the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. So Jonathan, he sees his dad. His dad is in Gibeah. What's Gibeah? Gibeah is where he's from. He's in his hometown. The Philistines have come up. There's a battle supposed to be taking place. What's the king doing? Sitting under a pomegranate tree. You ever eat a pomegranate? It takes forever. It takes forever. How long does it take you to eat a pomegranate tree? Probably a long time. He's sitting under the pomegranate tree. He's eating a pomegranate, pulling out the seeds. Is, does he sound like a king who's trying to go deliver his people? No. He's there. He doesn't have any counsel from God. And Jonathan looks over at his armor bearer and says, Hey, guys, let's, let's, let's go over there. The Philistines are over there in Michmash. You know, it's just two guys. Hey, nobody's going to notice two guys running across the desert, chasing the rabbits. Jumping over the bushes and crawling into the places where the Philistines are. So, let's look what happens. <clears throat> so, it says, They were between the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison. There was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other side. The name of one was Bozaz and the name of the other was Sena. It means glistening and thorny. They named this pass. This pass, there's a narrow pass. There's another story of this in history, uh, the Battle of Thermopylae. In the Battle of Thermopylae, the, the Greek soldiers lured the, the uh, Mesa... You ever have that happen? Never? It'll come to me in a minute. The Medo-Persians, he lures them in to this narrow pass, a Thermopylae, and they're able to defend that pass. For, for three days, they de- defend that pass and ultimately stop the thrust of the, 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 the Medo-Persians coming in that area to the point that they abandon their attack and wait for a later time to come. Well, before that all happened, Jonathan and his armor bearer, two guys, not the brave 300 of the story of Thermopylae, two guys went through this narrow pass. One rock is called glistening, the, the other rock is called Thorny. And between that, Jonathan, I'm going to go up between there and we're going to, we're going to fight with some Philistines in there. We're going to go see what's going on. So he takes him into this narrow pass. This narrow pass. It's interesting because when we read 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, it tells us, No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. And with each, God gives us a way of escape, right? The, the word in the Greek means a mountain pass. Pass between two rocks, perhaps. 
What's the, what's the two rocks? Well, is it, is, it, is it glistening and is it thorny? Maybe it's possibility and problem. Between possibility and problem is the mountain pass. It's always a chance God's going to do something. God's going to move, do some great thing. And between that, between that place, the possibility and problem, that's where Jonathan went. I think a lot of time that's how the Lord leads us out through that mountain pass. Here comes Jonathan into this pass. The, the front of one faced north opposite Michmash and the other south opposite Gibeah. And Jonathan said to the young man who bore his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. I love Jonathan because Jonathan is the first time we meet Jonathan. What's he doing? Whooping the Philistines. Why? Because he just decided I'm going to go get him. I'm going to go get him. They're against the Lord. We're for the Lord. Let's go. Now he's just two guys, him and his armor bearer. How many swords do they have? Nope. One, one sword. How many shields? One. So the guy who's got the sword and the shield looks pretty good for him. The other guy, not so good for Not so good for. What's he fighting with? I don't know. But Jonathan looks over, who's got the sword and the shield, and he looks at his armor bearer, the guy who's going to carry it for him. And he says, hey, let's say we go over there. Because nothing restrains the Lord from delivering with many or few. We don't have to have a lot of guys. If we're willing to stand for the Lord, all things are possible. Well, you know... David had something to say about this. You know, David and Jonathan are going to be great friends. And I'm sure David's going to hear this story more than once as he comes along. But that David had his mighty men. You know, the mighty men of David? The scripture talks about them. How one man would stand against 800. Or one man against 300. One man willing to stand in the power of the Lord was able to deliver. Deuteronomy chapter 32, the Lord says, One man will be able to put a thousand to flight. And two, 10,000. Now, that doesn't seem like the right multiplication, does it? If one sends 1,000, then two should send 2,000. But what God's saying is it don't matter. I can deliver with many or with few. And Jonathan knew that. He understood it. And his armor bearer, listen, the armor bearer had to be someone who was loyal Someone who is loyal to you. And the armor bearer looks at Jonathan and he says, Hey, do whatever's in your heart. Go then. Here, I'm with you. Whatever God puts on your heart, go. I'm with you. It's you and me till the wheels fall off. So off they go. So Jonathan said, Very well, let's cross over to to these men and we'll show ourselves to them. Here's what he's going to do. Listen, he's not going to want to do this presumptuously. He only wants to go if God wants him to go. But there are three groups of people. We're going to see in this chapter three groups. We're going to see the people who, who uh, are like Jonathan, want to be a part of things. And so they step out first and see what God's going to do. Just like the children of Israel crossing the, the Jordan River, the Lord said, when your foot is in the water, I'll stop the water. When your feet are dry, you're not going to see, it's not going to look no different. What if I get really close? No, no, put your foot in. Put your foot in, the water will stop. Don't put your foot in, it's going to stay raging. 
Well, we look here in chapter 14, we're going to notice a group of guys. What are we going to notice? We're going to notice a group of guys that you might call the holdouts. Who are the holdouts? They're the guys who are waiting to see if God starts to do something. And if God starts to do something, they're going to jump in. They're holdouts. They're holding out to see the work begin. But they're not willing to be with Jonathan and step into it first. Jonathan's going to put himself close. You're going to see the sellouts. The sellouts are the guys who were sitting there with Saul and they saw nothing happening. And so they joined the enemy. They surrendered. They sold out. They sold out. The third group you're going to see is the dropouts. They got so tired of waiting, they just bailed. Forget it. We're out of here. Same group in the church today. The ones who step out. The ones who drop out. The ones who sell out. And the ones who will hold out. The question is, which one will we be? Here Jonathan says, hey, let's step up and let them see us. And we'll, dis- we'll discern what God's plan is for us. If they say, wait, we're coming to you, then we'll know. <clears throat> then we will stand still in our place and not go to them. But if they say, come on up here, then we'll go up. For that means the Lord has delivered them into our hand. And that will be the sign for us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. So they get close enough so the Philistines can see them. And they say, let's see what the Philistines say. And they say, wait till we get a hold of you guys. Then we'll know, well, God doesn't want us to do it. But if they say, why don't you guys come up here and we'll show you a thing or two. Then we'll know. God's given them to us. So they show themselves. And the Philistines say, look, the Hebrews are coming out of the holes where they have hidden And the men of the garrison called to Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Why don't you guys come up to us and we'll show you something. Hmm. Oh man, Jonathan got all excited. He's like, do you hear that? I wonder if the armor bearer was as excited as Jonathan, I don't know. But Jonathan goes, man, you hear that? He said, come up here, man. Oh oh, man, wait till you see. God's going to deliver all those guys to us. Hey, when they were originally at that camp, there were 30,000. It's pretty steep odds, right? Would you agree? Two against 30,000? <laughs> oh, that's too big. There's really nothing we can do. Well, apparently there is. Apparently there is. Holy cow. So he hears this. <clears throat> so they say this. Jonathan said to his armor bearer, come up after me, for the Lord has delivered him into the hand of Israel. We're going to go whoop him. And so he goes. And Jonathan climbed up on his hands and knees. You know, sometimes when, when God calls and God directs and we step out in faith to see if God's going to be there and he is there, sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes the way to discern whether or not something is God's will is not how easy is it. Because Jonathan stepped out and he, and he heard what he wanted to hear to, to discern that this is God calling us to go. And then he had to go on his hands and knees. Man, that's a lot of work. Crawling up. Hey, I've been on my hands and knees chasing elk around Idaho. <laughs> Jonathan's way more successful than I am. Sometimes it's hard work. Sometimes the only way up that hill is on your hands and knees. You crawl up it. That's what he's doing. Sometimes it's hard work. 
Just because something is hard does not mean that it's not God's plan. That it's not part of God's purpose. So Jonathan climbed on his hands and knees and his armor bearer followed him. And I love the armor bearer. Because the armor bearer doesn't complain. He doesn't have anything to say. He doesn't, he doesn't talk behind his back. He doesn't look back at the other Israelites. He goes, man, I got stuck following this knucklehead. And it's two against 30,000. It's not going to work out so good. This is the dumbest thing I've ever done in my life. He don't say none of that. He sees his role to support Jonathan. When I first came into ministry and I was serving under Pastor Gerald, I was not a very good example. Before I was on the board or anything, I'm just helping out at the church. Pastor Gerald could do nothing right in my eyes. I, what is he doing? Why does he do this? And why does he do that? And I found myself with a group of people that was always doing that, you know, complaining. Complaining. That's why I can recognize them when they're doing them around me now. Because I go, oh, yes, I used to sit in that group right over there. I see what you're doing. But anyhow, they, I'd sit in that place and I'd, and I, I don't mean that group over there, you know. I just, <laughs> I'm just pointing. It's this group. This Anyways, I digress. So, so I was doing all this complaining and backbiting and, and whatever. And then one day, the Lord led me to places in the scripture. He led me to, to a book called The Tale of Three Kings. And he busted me. God busted me. And I, I'm reading this book and I'm studying on the life of David and I'm bawling. And I'm thinking, man, God, I am a poor example of anybody who, who desires to serve you. I will not say ever again another word. Broke away from that group. And the Lord, you know, I thought I had all the answers, so God wanted to prove to me that I didn't, and he, he put me on the board. And you get on the board, and you realize everything's not as cut and dry as you could think, and there's other things that, but, you know, everybody doesn't understand that stuff. And the, my heart was always that people would believe and trust that the board is seeking the Lord. It's God, guide us, show us the way. And then the board steps out on something, and, and 30% of people are mad. What do they do that for? Man, we're praying. You don't believe we're praying? You don't believe we're seeking the Lord, and, and, but I had been part of that group. Then God called me to be the armor bearer. The Lord raised me up to a place where I was second behind Gerald. And Gerald would have the craziest ideas ever. My job was to make them happen. Not to find out why they wouldn't. That was my job. Some people would say, ah, Jackie, you're just a yes man. Yeah, praise God, because you look at the armor bearer. What was his job? What about the guys holding up the arms of Moses? What was their job? To tell Moses a dumb idea? No. Hold up his arms. Armor bearer just went in behind him, said, all right, man, uh, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to do what, what I believe God's called me to do. So Gerald would say, we're going to do this, and I'd go make sure it got done. Go make sure it happened. That's the armor bearer, man. That's what the armor bearer is all about. The guy who can take the vision and run with it. Make it happen. There'll be 10,000 people who'll say that's a dumb idea. One particular day, we got this crazy idea that we're going to put a football field on a 40-acre campus and in the middle of a desert where there's no water. See, we, we live in a desert here, but this is not the kind of desert I come from. The kind of desert I come from doesn't have any water. 
It doesn't have anything that grows. That little furry green stuff that you mow, it doesn't have any of that. In the entire town of Yucca Valley, there is grass in one place, a public park. That's it. Everybody's front yard is the same. Right? Dirt. No grass. Gerald says, oh, we're going to put in a football field. Oh, cool. We're going to hire somebody to come? Nah, it costs a lot of money. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to do it ourselves? Yeah, it's something like, I don't even remember, it was insane. Like 280,000 square foot was, I mean, anyways, big, big chunk of grass. Well, okay, well, we, we, we're going to rent the equipment and then big rolls, you know, and the, and the truck that pulls the big rolls and unwinds the grass? No, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to just buy it on the pallets and take it off by hand. <laughs> Okay. Hey, my job is to show up and make it happen. So we show up. The morning we show up, it's like four in the morning. We start to lay it. And the first truck driver comes and he starts laughing at us. He's laughing. <laughs> you guys are morons. Pastor Gerald got a little bit worried at that point. Up until that time, he never seemed worried at all. He said, this grass is going to die on the trucks. You're never going to get this grass off of here. You, this, there's no way that you're going to get this done. Four o'clock, we started laying. By 10 o'clock, it was all done. All the grass was on the ground, being watered in. And the truck driver, he kept volunteering to come back because he could not believe what he was seeing. As God directed, he gave understanding and it all worked out. 250 people showed up to unload that grass. At one point, I think it took less than a minute to empty a pallet. We were emptying the pallets faster than the tractor or the forklift could get the pallet off a truck. Bam, got done. Because people didn't say, you can't do it. They just said, well, if that's what we're going to do, let's do it. Let's make it happen like the armor bearer. Let's make it happen. Let's, let's see these things take place. Let's see God work. So, there are the armor bearer. armor bearer. He's going. These are the guys who are step out. Man, they're going to go. And then it says, the first slaughter. Wow. Isn't that the way that you would put it? Two guys against all these people. The first slaughter, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, was 20 men within about a half acre of land. So with about a half acre of land in this narrow pass, he kills 20 guys. And there was a trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people, and the garrison, and the raiders. The raiders. Remember, those are the guys that are looking for anybody who's coming. They even feel it. Big old earthquake. The earthquake, so that it was a very great trembling. So he starts fighting. He steps out. He, he hears what he wants to hear. He goes. He begins. He starts fighting, he kills one guy. Nothing happens, spectacular, kills two, kills three, kills five, kills ten. He's just doing his thing, man. As far as Jonathan knows, man, he's going to have to do this for 30,000 people. But he's not complaining, and he's not finding a reason why he can't do it, he's just doing it. And his armor bearer is right there beside him saying, come on, man, let's go. And after 20 men, there's an earthquake, and God began to move. Man, I, I see that just like when, you know, when, when Noah built the ark. And he moved his family in it. 
Day one. There's no rain. We wonder, did he start to worry? The rain's not going to come. I don't think he did. I think he had already said in his heart, hey, guess what God told me to do? I'll sit here if it takes a year, two years, three years. But the rain came. God began to move. Right here, man, God began to move. The earth quaked, begins to, to, to crumble and fall. And the scripture goes on to tell us now, the watchmen of Saul in Gibeah, Benjamin, looked and there was a multitude melting away and they went here and there. They look and they see the Philistines skirmishing and, and, and doing all kind of crazy and falling back. And they're like, oh, what's going on? There, the holdouts. Remember Saul sitting under the tree, waiting for something to happen. Waiting for something to happen. Not willing to, to step out and be that which would, would be a part of the beginning or being a part of that foundational move. But now they see something happening. So, Saul said to the people who were with him, call the roll, let's see who has gone from us. Who cares? Does it matter? You know why Saul calls a roll? Somebody's stealing my thunder. I'm the king, I'm supposed to win the victory, but somebody's over there whooping them. And I need to know who it is. So they call the roll. 2,400 guys have deserted. It just blows me away that you can even figure out who's not there. But they, do the, they call the roll and they figure out that Jonathan and his armor bearer are gone. So Saul said to Ahijah, bring the ark of God here. For at that time the ark of God was with the children of Israel. So Saul's got the ark. Now didn't they learn anything about bringing the ark into the battle? You're not supposed to bring the ark into the battle. The ark is the presence of God. You seek the presence of God and the understanding of God before the battle. When the battle starts, it's late. You should have already been doing it. But he was sitting under a tree eating pomegranates, right? That was more important. So now he calls for the ark. And it happened while Saul talked with the priest that the noise which was in the camp of the Philistines continued to increase. So Saul said to the priest, withdraw your hand. What a knucklehead. Go get the ark. And he gets the ark and he wants to hear from God, what should I do? Okay, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think he should have done it way back at the beginning when he was sitting under the pomegranate tree thinking he didn't have anything to do. But now, there he is, and he's going to seek the Lord. Okay, Saul, seek the Lord, but Saul is so impatient. He sees somebody else getting the glory, and the fight's going on, and i got to be in the fight, and i got to go. So he tells the priest, forget it, don't ask God, let's go. Ah, Saul, that's the problem. When you should seek the Lord, you don't. And when you do, you don't have the patience to wait for an answer. Or to wait for direction. Or to wait for God to tell you. Man, we gotta, we got to hear from the Lord. we got to know what God's sending us and calling us to do. Well, it says, Then Saul and all the people who were with him assembled, and they went into the battle. And indeed, every man's sword was against his neighbor, and there was a very great confusion. So the holdouts who want to do something for the Lord, but want to wait for the Lord to move, have just entered the fray. The holdouts are in with the stepouts. The stepouts were first. Then came the holdouts. The holdouts are there, but they're there. They're in the battle. Hey, praise God, they're in the battle. And every man's sword is all this confusion because the Philistines are whacking each other. And the earth is quaking and God's doing it. 
God's doing the work. He was always going to do the work. Stand back and see the salvation of the God. Next we see the sellouts. Moreover, the Hebrews who were with the Philistines... What? Yeah, you remember? 2,400 guys left. They decided it was better to go with the Philistines. I'm going to go to those, those guys. They're going to win. I'm on their side. Come on, when we were laying that grass, there were people who said, you know that truck driver just said, we're never going to get this done. This is never going to work. We're going to see this grass die. It's just not going to happen. I don't even know why we're trying. We should just go home and quit. And then about two-thirds of the way through, they're saying, you know, I always knew that this was going to work out like this, and we were going to be able to get this done. (laughs) Yeah? Yeah, sure. Whatever. It's all right. The sellouts just weren't in the place. They, they sold out, they went over there, but when they saw the hand of God moving and the victory, then they stepped in. Then they stepped in. And the holdouts and the sellouts, they're, they're both joined in the fray. It says, so they went up to them into the camp from the surrounding country. They joined the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. And then you see the dropouts. Like, likewise, all the men of Israel who had hidden in the mountains. He said, forget it. We're going to hide in the holes. They come out of the holes and they, they, uh, in the mountains of Ephraim. When they heard that the Philistines fled, they also followed hard after them in the battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day and the battle shifted to Beth-Avon. Man. Holy cow. God moved, man. He did incredible stuff. He he does this amazing thing. But how did it start? With two men who were willing to step out. And you know how many times that's true? How many great revivals of the Lord start that way? The two men get together and say, hey, we're going to pray for the community. Starts with those who step out. Then the ones who are, are waiting... Off in the outskirts, you know, are wondering, is God going to do something? The holdouts, they start to see something happen. They'll step up. And it grows, and it grows, and it grows. We just have a decision to make. Which group you want to be? Step out? Hold out? Sell out? Drop out? Which one you want? All of them ended up in the battle. All of them got to see the victory of the Lord. With two of them, God's well pleased. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the Lord says, A great multitude of the children of Israel came to Kadesh Barnea. But the Bible says with most of them, God was not well pleased. We know of the 12 spies, two of them believed God could deliver. They were the step outs. Everybody else was something else. Right? Everybody else was something else. Waiting to see what God would do, forgetting that God would do anything, selling out the idea that God could, could do anything at all. Man, God's going to do something. Who do you want to be? What group you want? Do you want to be a Jonathan? Do you want to be like the armor bearer? When you see the move of God begin, do you want to be right there at the cusp? Do we want to... Go beyond where we're at. Listen, I, uh, I shared something at the, at the men's retreat. I just, I just wanted to share briefly tonight. And as we look at this story, I think it's, it's certainly pertinent. When I coached 
football and when I hear kids talk about we got a goal. And we want to win the state championship. That's every kid's goal in high school football. And I tell them the same thing. In order for you to win the state championship, this is going to have to be the most important thing you do. I mean, more important than all that other stuff and family vacations, more important. You're going to have to just really commit yourself to making it happen. Go out and win it. Most people won't do it. They won't do the work. They just want it to happen. But I shared with the guys, you and I are all going to have one Experience. We're all going to share one experience. We're each going to have our moment with Almighty God. We're going to stand before Jesus Christ. And we're going to look in His eyes. And one time and only one time, you have the chance to hear, Well done, good and faithful servant. It's the state championship for the believer. And if you want to have that experience, it's got to be the most important thing in your life. Nothing else more important than that. And a number of people are going to stand before God and they're going to enter into the kingdom of the Lord and God's going to throw his hands around them and say, welcome home. But, Some are going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Some are going to win that championship, that that one chance. You're not another chance. He doesn't do it again at the end of the kingdom or at the great white throne judgment or, or 10 million years into eternity. He's never going to do it again. One time, one chance, one chance. One life to live, one chance to hear that. Jonathan and the armor bearer? Is there any question in your mind? Man, they're going to hear it. They're going to hear it. David? Little kid facing Goliath? Ah, he's going to hear it. Questions for us. Paul said this. Not that I have already attained, but one thing I do, Forgetting the past, maybe I messed up back here. Who cares? That's gone. Can't do nothing about that. Forget about the past. I press on. One goal. I'm going to tell you my one goal is not to make Calvary Chapel Buell the biggest church in Buell. I don't care. I don't care at all. Not one iota. One thing. One goal. Well done, good and faithful servant. You were a step out. You didn't just fade into the crowd. You were a step out. One chance. For every one of us, we all have the opportunity. Most find a reason that they can't. But we already know with God, all things are possible. Amen? Amen. Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank you so much for this time. We can study your word and we thank you for the truth of your word and how it compels us and and drives us to desire, Lord God, to be who you're calling us to be, that there's so much more than what we have. My citizenship is not here. My citizenship is in heaven. And a Greek word is the word for politics. My politics are not here. My politics are in heaven. That I will do the work that the Father gives me to do. God, I pray that I'll be a step out. I pray, Lord, that we here in this place would make that decision to be a step out, that we would live our life understanding if I let this be the most important thing in my life, to honor, it doesn't mean my life will be easy. It doesn't mean everything's always going to work out. What it means is when I arrive at the finish line, I'm going to hear my Lord and Savior say, well done. I won't have a question to ask. I'll just fall down on my knees in that place and weep like a little baby. And if I was to come to that place and only hear, welcome home. What would I have been willing to trade at that moment? What would I go back If I could go back, what would I be willing to trade to say, you know what, this is not that important. That thing over there is not that important. There's a lot of things I chased in my life that I thought were the end-all, beat-all that turned out really not to have very much meaning in them at all. What would I give? Whatever it is, give it up. Lay it down. Run the race to win. Everything we have. From now till then, God, I pray that you would equip us to be who you're calling us to be. That you would cause us to move forward in an amazing way. God, that you would just bring about your perfect work. Man, Lord, you are able to do abundantly above all we can think or imagine. I pray we live our life like that. Step out in faith. And you'll meet us there. And you'll do a work. And you'll be glorified by the life we live before you. God, we pray that you do a move and a work in our life right now, this place. We wouldn't be the same tomorrow or the next day or the next day. But we would move forward and accomplish all that you have for us to do. We ask that you would move by your spirit in a mighty way, empower your church, and that we would make the choice to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To go after you with all we have. And we will, like Jonathan, enjoy the victory. God, we thank you and praise you for this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out tonight with a word of worship. We want to invite you to hang out and worship with us. We got some grub outside. I'll meet you around the coffee table out there. If uh, if anybody here tonight has anything, I know we got 
we got one guy we're going to be praying for a little bit uh, as we close out tonight. If anybody's looking for, for prayer or any of those things, just hang out afterwards and throw up a hand. We'd be happy to pray with you guys. God bless you. And go in peace. Savior, Redeemer, lift me from my clay. Almighty, forever, I will never be the same because you gave me from the everlasting to the world we live. Father's only Son, and you live.
Oh, Lord, you've taken these hearts of stone, Lord, and you've given us a new heart for all that you have done. Lord, you've created in us, Lord, a new creation. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you continue that work in each of us. Lord, that you just chip away all those barriers and those walls that we put up, Lord God. Lord, that we would run into our Savior's arms. Lord, that we would surrender all. Lord, that we would just meet you there. Lord, go with us as we fellowship. Lord, Lord, bless our time together. Lord, we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.